Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you so much, Sandra and Richard, uh, two amazing people who, with their daughter, have joined our church during the whole COVID period through the online stuff. We're so glad that you guys are with us and thank you for doing the Bible reading. Now, here's my question. Here's a scenario for you. If you had a thousand one pound coins to give away and each one had to be given to a different person, what criteria would you use? Who would you give them to? Why would you give them to the people that you gave them to? And what would you expect the recipient to do with that one pound coin? Now, I imagine that who would be pretty much anybody. You wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't really be that discerning. You'd give one pound to most people because it's not that much money. Uh, why would you give it to them? Well, linked to that, you probably wouldn't have a whole checklist of reasons why you gave it to anyone. It, it's not that much money. You probably wouldn't really look into their CV very much. You'd just give them a pound. You don't really need to know their backstory. And what would you expect them to do with that one pound? you probably wouldn't care. It's only a small amount of money and uh, they can kind of do whatever they like with it, even if it was something a bit dodgy. Uh, maybe they added it to another sum of money that then they did something not great. You probably wouldn't feel that bad or that attached to that because it was all a, only a small amount. Now my question is, let's flip the scenario. You've got one thousand pound check. So you've got a check for a thousand pounds to give away. Now ask yourself the same three questions. Who would you give it to? Why would you give it to them? And what would you expect them to do with it? Now I think the answers would change. You would be a bit more selective about who you would give that thousand pounds to. Why would you give it to them? You'd probably do it on the basis of, uh, I don't know, they were a relation to you. Perhaps uh, you want a relationship with them. Um, perhaps it's kind of a bit of a reward. They've done something that you thought was impressive. Or you think that you might get a bit of a return from giving them a thousand pounds. You might get something back in return that would favour you. There's now more criteria that you're adding to the reason why you are giving it to that person in particular. And then what would you expect them to do with it? Well, you'd probably have higher expectations. You wouldn't want them to be spending it on dodgy stuff or putting it into a, 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 a sort of something that you didn't ethically agree with. You would think that that money would be a bit more attached to your honour. Um, and so you'd have higher expectations uh, of what you would expect them to do with that thousand pounds. 
Now here's my question, and this is where it relates to our subject today. Which of those is an example of grace? Option A or option B? I have found that thinking about authentic grace is a little bit like talking about authentic paella to a Spaniard. Uh, I texted my Spanish friend and asked him what goes into an authentic, turns out, Valencian paella. And there are certain ingredients that must go in, but equally important, there are certain ingredients that must not go in in order for it to be authentic and not an adulterated version of paella. Um, and it's the same with authentic grace. There's many versions of grace out there, and there were uh, in Paul's day, many different definitions or understandings of grace. Here in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10 is one of the best descriptions. I don't think anywhere in the New Testament there is an absolute definition, a complete and perfect and full definition of grace. You have to read the whole thing. But this little passage is probably one of the best descriptions of the, the ingredients that must be there and the ingredients that must not be there in order for it to be authentic grace. So let's compare. What must be there in a paella? Rice, uh, peppers, stock. What must be there in authentic grace? It must be a gift. So it must not be uh, wages. It's not a salary. It's not a reward for something. It is a gift and it must produce good works. It must result in good works in the end. Those are two ingredients that must be in authentic grace, if you're understanding it correctly. But mo just as important is what must not be there. Uh, apparently, chorizo must not go into an a paella. That would make it inauthentic. What would make grace inauthentic, from the Bible's perspective, would be if the gift was given on the basis of works, achievement, worthiness of any kind. So often, let's say at Christmas, you probably didn't give gifts to everyone on your street. That doesn't mean that it wasn't a gift. It's genuinely a gift from you to the recipients. But it was probably based around the fact that they were related to you or that you are married to them or uh, something like that. So in some fashion, they are worthy of the gift. It's not that they've earned it. They haven't worked for it. It's a gift. But there was a worthiness attached to it. That must not be the case for authentic biblical grace. That can't go in. It will cause it to be inauthentic. Also, it must not lead to any kind of boasting on the part of the recipient. They cannot claim any kind of glory for the fact that they received grace, that they experienced grace, if it's authentic. So that's a very brief uh, definition of paella and authentic grace. So let's just go back to our original option A and option B. Which one of those is grace? Well, I was a bit mean, neither of them are true authentic grace. But you could kind of blend them together. So a closer example would be, you've got a cheque for £1,000. Who do you give it to? Anyone. Why do you give it to them? Purely because you want to. Nothing to do with them whatsoever. Not because they've done well, not because they've committed a whole load of criminal activities and you want to get them out of that. It, it, it's, it's not anything to do with them. You haven't checked their CV. You, you, it's, it's not related to their worthiness in any fashion. What do you expect them to do with that thousand pounds? Huge things. You have high expectations. 
It is attached to your honour. It is attached to uh, what you intend for them. You believe that it will transform their life. There is an expectation that this will produce great and good works at the end of it. That is a closer description of authentic grace. But now I think we want to ask the question, well, what is the gift itself? And this requires us thinking about the words. In this passage, the word grace, where it's uh, translated, is actually referring to the manner with which a gift has been given. Grace in the Bible can also refer to the matter, i.e. the actual gift. But I want to ask the question now, what is the gift that Paul mentions? Because uh, he says very clearly, doesn't he, it is a gift of God. But what is that gift? I think sometimes uh, this gift can be understood as a substance of some kind. And that comes out in the way people sometimes say, don't worry, there's grace for that. Which, uh, with the correct understanding, makes sense, but often, I think, betrays this idea that there's this almost heavenly salve or uh, heavenly ointment that comes down that God uses to cover up our mistakes or to uh, wipe away dodgy things. And it's almost like this special heal all cream that comes out of heaven. Um, I, I was actually probably uh, misleading with the whole illustration at the beginning with the thousand pounds because I think sometimes uh, grace can be uh, understood a little bit as if it's a boost of cash. It's sort of a great big, uh, I don't know, um, Let's think about the secret millionaire that was once on TV. A millionaire went, goes and lives with poorer people and dresses like them and hangs out with them, finds out what their needs are, goes back to their luxurious lifestyle, but then just sends an enormous check to try and transform the situation. Sometimes grace can be understood in that way. Um, that's not the gift that God has given. It's also not an energy drink. It's not an infusion of uh, super heavenly, supernatural booster that just makes you a better person. Um, that's sort of injected into your arm. It's a steroid boost. It's a Botox facelift. And things now you, you, your old self is just becoming better. Um, if you check the Catholic catechisms, the, the, the doctrines on the Vatican website, it does describe grace as a, a divine help which I think that's unhelpful language because it's not this infused energy drink Red Bull shot that will just make you more energetic, more holy, more righteous. It isn't that at all. Great, the gift, the grace that God has graciously given is far more personal because it is a person. It is the person of the Son of God himself and it is the person of the Holy Spirit given to us by the Father. This is very, very important. I'm just going to read a quote which really helps to underpin this, I think. That God gives himself is not the speculation of theologians, but it's the heart of the gospel. What God gives to us in the gospel is fellowship with him, communion with him, eternal life with him. It is the most, it, it is the most in the most famous verse in the New Testament, Jesus says that the Father loved the world and gave his only begotten Son, this gift from the Father is also a self-gift of the Son who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. He gave himself for me, Paul says in Galatians, and as a loving husband gave himself for his bride. Not only the Son, but the Spirit, as Augustine recognised, is a gift from the Father and the Son to us. 
so that all who believe and are baptized receive the gift of the Spirit, whether Jews or Gentiles. And when the Son and the Spirit are given, the Father is given as well. Through the Spirit, Father, Son and Spirit come to be with us. We are engrafted into them and they in us. The gift that is given to us is God himself. That is so important. I want to ask the question, how might that change or affect how you relate to God and a gracious God? Now, you'll remember that uh, our, our understanding of authentic grace produces or results in good works, just like an authentic paella produces or results in a happy David. True, authentic grace produces and results in good works in this world. But how? That's my next question. How does it result in good works? Essentially, why, if you're a Christian, do you do good works? Why do you think you should do good works? I think sometimes it creeps into my head that it's from the attitude of kind of just pure obligation. I had better do better. I had better be better. If Jesus has jumped in front of a bus for me, then I should be more careful crossing the road. I should perhaps even, if I'm really supercharged, jump in front of a bus for other people. I had better be better out of that sort of mere obligation. He's done something good for me. I better live a better life. Or it very it chimes with modern thinking a lot. It's, it's sort of this act of self-creation. I want to make a better person of myself. I want to become a better person. I want to be a self-created good person. Uh, and God is going to help me get there. Whether that's a, uh, to a stage at a festival, performing on the main stage, or whether that is a promotion, or whether that is starting a charity, whatever it might be, it's I want to become a better version of me. And God is going to infuse and help me get there. I don't think either of those are the best way of thinking. They're probably elements of truth, but they're probably not the best way of thinking why we do good works if we have received grace. Because in this passage, I think it gives us the real good news of actually why we can respond to God in this way. And I'd say it's because of this, because we have been created for it. And this creation is not referring to just all humanity. It's not just referring to uh, all humans have the capacity to do this. Notice, created in Christ Jesus. It's in his achievement. It's in the gospel. It's through faith in him that we are actually recreated. But it is important to notice that there are echoes of Genesis chapter 1. So if you know the beginning of the Bible, God, out of complete chaos and disorder, creates good stuff. That's the whole of Genesis chapter 1. Out of nothing, out of darkness, chaos, disorder, God creates and forms good things. I think Paul is echoing that language here because God has made or God is creating a new creation. And it started with Jesus, started with Christ Jesus. And then anyone that's in him is part of that new creation. So it's actually out of Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 at the beginning of the chapter. It, it talks about the fact that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. 
it's the ultimate version of this dark, disordered, chaotic world that is being described at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. That's the state of humanity. Then out of that, God creates brand new, new creations, new human beings in his son. Because of the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we can be made new beings, new creatures. And those creatures are designed to do good things. When they act naturally according to their new nature, they do good things. They start to enable this good new creation that God intends to emerge. And so what are these good works that Paul's referring to here? Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, I think he refers to specific individual callings that you have on your life. But here I think it's more general. But it's definitely not, in this passage, it's definitely not referring to the sacred or spiritual things that some people just assign to Sundays. The reading the Bible, prayer, going to church kind of things. It's not referring to that. It's far more holistic. And I found this a fantastic description um, from a second century letter written to someone who wanted to find out about Christianity and Christians that I think just puts it beautifully. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regards to dress, food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign or even London. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they, were, they are only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labour under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. For the good they do, they receive punishment and malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. I think that is a beautiful description of the kind of good works that God has prepared beforehand for you and I to walk in. So I've just got three very real world questions to kind of bring this heavenly idea really down to earth for you to try and think through some applications. And I'm going to ask you as an individual, then I'm going to ask it to parents, and then I'm going to ask it kind of of society in general. The first question is this. What might this reality do to your self-esteem if you truly lived in it? We're told to, we, we stand in grace, but do we understand the grace that we stand in? If you really got that the most valuable thing about you on a cosmic eternal scale is not attached to the state of your LinkedIn profile or your Instagram profile or perhaps your... I don't know how many stamps you have in your passport, your achievements at school, at university. It's not, a, 
it's not attached to your family tree, how well your children and grandchildren have done. It is a gift that has been given to you, the Son of God himself and the Spirit of God and the Father, all given to you and a relationship with him that came about not based on any of your achievements whatsoever. Genuinely, what would that do to your self-esteem? What kind of a person would you be? How different would you live if that was your working assumption every single day? Now a question to parents, and please hear me on this one. I am a very new parent. I am only just learning these things. So this is genuinely a question. I'm not asking this from the perspective of I've worked this one out. I've just read a small book on it and thought, oh, those are nice ideas. Are there areas of your family culture that need transforming to be more grace-based? So, for example, could you transform the culture? Are there certain areas where it's more defined by you get what you deserve? Could that be transformed to you get before you deserve? I think that is, is a more grace-based culture that starts in the right place. This does not mean that it's uh, all things are allowed, everything is permissible. That's a wrong understanding of grace because that leaves out the whole idea that true grace produces good works. But grace does say you get before you deserve. Are there any areas in your family's culture where you've slid into you get what you deserve? And actually you could potentially, by God's enabling, transform things back to a grace-based culture. I read in a book, and this was just a beautiful description of what it could be in a home. Imagine a meadow in the spring. No matter what happened on that meadow the day before, the next morning it will be covered in this beautiful crystal dew that just covers the ground. It just gives it that fresh look. Can our homes, can your lounge be a similar image of that? No matter what happened the day before, the night before, there is fresh dew on the ground. There is fresh grace, fresh mercy every single morning in your household. Now, you might need a quick cup of coffee in order to make that more realistic, but could that be something that we aspire to? And then my third and final question is, actually, I'm going to use a short clip from an interview, which I think at least illustrates what might happen if, and here's the question, what happens if our society drifts away from grace much further? All human beings are worthy of provision and protection. All of them. Right? Do you, would you agree with that? All, human, all members of the human family, no matter what their achievements, no matter what their attributes, all members of the human family are worthy of all provision and protection. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. It's definitely a problem, especially when you've got people who are discovering disabled children in the womb. When I, when I say I have no idea, it's about that simplification. I, I, my instinct is, of course, to say yes. Mm. It's a very Christian instinct. Thank you. <laughs> That's a very atheist response. <laughs> I think that demonstrates for us that the further our society drifts away from having this almost subconscious or unconscious foundation upon the grace of God, the further it drifts from that, the more it will become more like a meat market where certain people, butchers and salespeople, 
assign different values to different lumps of meat, saying what is worthy of uh, extreme um, care and attention and what can kind of just be thrown in the bin. I, I fear that the further we drift from grace, the closer we get to a hellish society. And the only way that we're going to keep grace infused into our society is through us living it out, speaking about it, talking about it in a way that is compelling, that shows people that it is truly better news than a meritocracy, a, a sort of you earn things. You have to show that you val that um, we dignify you, we give you value because you've achieved something. Seriously, if children being born have to start achieving something in order to be granted true human dignity, we're in trouble. So let's pray that that is not the case and we see grace still being at the foundation of much of our society. Now I'm just going to close with a short snippet from the life of Jesus. John chapter 4 verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that offering it to you, you will never be thirsty again. If you don't know that gift, you will become more thirsty and more thirsty and more thirsty. Now's a moment where you could actually truly receive this gift of eternal life in Jesus himself that wells up inside of you and pours out of you. I'm just going to give a moment as I pray that you could respond to that grace of God through faith alone right now. Our Father, we thank you so much that out of your sheer love you gave your Son to us that we might be in a relationship with you by your spirit. We thank you that you want to give us all good things in Christ Jesus and that you make us new people and that you transform us and take us from glory to glory. Now, Lord, we pray that this living water would bubble up inside of us and pour out of us that we might be blessings to the world around us, that we might truly transform ourselves, our families and our societies 
for your honour and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.